This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Eden Lepecki, author of the novella, If You're Not Yet Like Me, and the novel, California. She is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and a staff writer at The Millions, an online literary website. Lepecki's novel, California, is set about 40 years into the future and focuses on a married couple, Cal and Frida. The two have left the crumbling city of Los Angeles behind them and are living on their own in the wilderness. When Frida discovers she's pregnant, they venture out in search of others and find a community of survivors shrouded in mystery. The reader is never told exactly why society has broken down, and we began the interview talking about why Lepecki left that out. I wanted to write a book where it wasn't as if a single thing happened to make the world horrible. So like a nuclear bomb went off or one virus swept across the world or something. I wanted it more just if we continue on a trajectory that we seem to be on now and oil's running out and there's more more climate change affecting, you know, weather so that we have storms and hurricanes and earthquakes. If all that stuff and, you know, a widening difference between the rich and poor, if all those things sort of kept on and got worse and worse and worse, what would we look, what would the world look like? So sometimes the idea of apocalypse doesn't seem like quite the right note for it or term for it because it's not like a single thing ended the world. It's just like things just got really bad and the world keeps going after that point. One of the things that you point out in the narrative really is that there are these worlds of the haves and the have-nots. There are these special communities that have school and food and, you know, they have support services, whereas Cal and Frida are more just living on their own, both when they're by themselves and then when this they found this other group of people to live with. They're just sort of more self-reliant. Yes, exactly. I mean, sometimes my book seems to me almost too lifelike or not even as horrific as real life when you think about poor communities in the present day often have similar problems that I present in my book. Um, I think when I was writing it, I read um, Behind the Beautiful Forever by Catherine Boo about the shanty towns in India and just thinking about that exists now in the present. But I think there's something extremely heartbreaking about the idea of, you know, the world actually isn't over if you have the money. To, to survive well. And that that sounds scarier to me than the world ends for everybody almost, you know? I mean, everyone dying is obviously a horrible idea, but the idea of, you know, there are groups of select people who are still drinking their Chianti at a nice, you know, a nice restaurant while the rest of us suffer out in the cities seems really awful to me. And I wanted to, I guess I wanted to think about that more because I spent three years thinking about it. You had never written anything like this before, a futuristic story, a post-apocalyptic world. So what drew you to this novel? I'm getting this question a lot, and I'm realizing that I sort of started the novel without thinking very hard about it at all, (laughs) Um, which maybe is the best way to begin a story, you know, in utter ignorance so that you, otherwise you'd be too afraid to try it. Um, Because I don't tend to read a lot of speculative fiction. Um, and then when I wanted, when I started writing it, I didn't want to read it because I felt like 
I don't want to be derivative, so I'm going to wait to read all these wonderful books. That said, I love The Road, and I love Margaret Atwood's science fiction and things like that. But I think I've always been attracted to narratives that take place in the future, whether it's in books or, you know, uh, films and TV and things like that. Um, And I have a pretty dark imagination, so I think I tend to think about that question of if everything went wrong, what would I do? (laughs) Um, Narrative. And there were a couple moments that led me into this particular story. Um, I was driving once on Sunset in L.A., and the streetlights above me weren't working, and it was just, there was something very eerie about it. Um, it wasn't like I was in a, you know, a desolate part of the city or anything. There, there seemed to be people out in cars in the streets, but just the very fact that the streetlights weren't working scared me a little bit. It made me think about, well, what if streetlights didn't work anymore, and what if this road was never repaired after today, and just got me thinking about what would happen if the city just didn't keep running like it always does, um, and that was one of the main things that got me into propelling myself into this kind of future. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Eden Lepecki, author of the novel California. In the beginning of California, the reader learns that Frida has these keepsakes that she likes to look at from before the world took a turn. One of the things she has is a brand new turkey baster, and she keeps this a secret from Cal. He doesn't know she has it. And Frida and Cal don't generally keep much from one another. But as the novel progresses, the two of them keep more secrets from one another, both when they are alone in the wilderness and then as they move into the community. So I was wondering what you were thinking about in terms of secrets between a married couple and in general. Um, great question. <laughs> um, a couple things. Well, when I first had her with the turkey baster, that was an exercise. So I really didn't in- set out thinking, okay, I'm going to start this book, but she has this one kind of innocuous secret. But it's interesting to me now to look back and see, oh, even the novel begins with her having this secret from Cal, even if it's harmless, even if it just helps her from day to day, it doesn't really mean much. It does seem indicative of a larger theme of the book, which is, I think, intimacy and the ways that we reveal ourselves to other people and the ways that we hide ourselves from other people. It's sort of like, how do you remain close when you're a separate being, um, and how do you remain close as a twosome when you enter a larger group of people? Um, it's funny because I actually am horrible at keeping secrets, particularly from my husband. Um, and so I think I recognize the drama of that in fiction, and so I am excited to explore it. I'm working on a novel now that has so many secrets, sort of left. It's not, my new book isn't quite as um, direct about it. In California, they the narrative really feeds off of them withholding from each other. Um, so I think it's sort of twofold. It's one, it, there's a there's a narrative drive from the withholding of the secrets and the revealing of the secrets. I remember recognizing that I had the secrets and the power of that. I could kind of feel it pushing me forward as I was writing. Um, but I also think if you if if I was alone with my husband at the end of the world, <laughs> I might actually want to withhold things as a way to feel more normal or as a way to bring drama into my life, sort of a personal harmless drama. Um, And I don't know, I think the whole book is sort of about them negotiating how to be a couple 
even in a world that's so, in many ways, unlike our contemporary world. And I think, even though I don't keep secrets from my husband, I think those questions of how do you be yourself, how do you be a separate self, and be very close to another person, I think that's interesting to me as a human now. And so I think that ended up informing the book a little bit. So in the opening of California, we see Cal and Frida living on their own in the wilderness, and they're self-sufficient, they grow their own food. And then... Frida discovers she's pregnant and they decide that they need to find other people. What was the impetus for that? Or why did you feel like it was necessary because they were going to have a child that they needed to find others? I've been thinking about this because when I was in elementary school, we read a book and I can't for the life of me remember enough details of the book to to get the title but I just remember it was about, I think it was a father and a son who ended up living in the wilderness together. And I remember one of the units that we, you know, when you discuss the book with senior language arts class, was about how people need food and shelter, um, but they also need other people or they'll, they'll perish, basically. And I don't know if this is a fabricated memory, but it's just, I remember that being a really... Mem- that's a really memorable moment from the fourth, I think the third or fourth grade that I have, um, and I remember thinking very strongly, yes, that's true. We need people to survive. Like we would go totally bonkers if we didn't have anyone else around. Um, and I actually think in California, um, Frida and Cal, even if she didn't think she was pregnant, would eventually go off to find other people, or Frida might have gone off on her own. I think curiosity would just at some point, something else would propel them to find other people. I don't know. I have that feeling. California is all in third person, but you go back and forth between Frida's point of view and Cal's point of view. And I think it was in a chapter about Frida. There was this ritual of them meeting and falling in love and that it was special and they told each other everything. And then she sort of had this realization that that's just what courtship is it seemed really significant for her to realize that. And I just wanted to ask you more about that idea. Um, yeah. Um, you know, Frida and Cal, I think it, I forget myself, they're really young. So they really are each other's first loves. And the world just went to crap before they could even consider dating anyone else. And I think they're, I think they're very happy and meant to be. They're well-matched in a lot of ways. I sometimes think about this, that if I was suddenly flung back into the dating world, (laughs) which I hope doesn't happen to me (laughs) anytime soon from other stories I've heard. But there is this idea of presenting yourself to another person as a way to get to know them romantically of like, okay, on the first date, you might present this narrative. And then later you present this narrative. And this is the secret you wouldn't reveal to the fifth date. And I think when I met my husband, I wasn't aware that this was a narrative that people participated in. Um, I feel like Frida was a little bit naive despite all the bad things that had happened to her in the world and that she didn't quite understand that that might be the case. Or maybe that's just a cynical way of looking at becoming romantically involved with someone. But I really feel that this is a real revelation to her that maybe it's a real revelation to her that, you know, just because you tell everyone, tell somebody everything about yourself doesn't mean that you've actually revealed your whole self or that they're revealing their whole self to you, that there's always something else. So I think that's sort of capturing her growing up a little bit because she is so young and she has only been with Cal, really, in terms of a serious relationship. 
And so after they leave, they do go find this other community of people. No spoilers, Mitzi. Nope, no spoilers. But they do find another community. And um, they're trying to figure out if they can assimilate with these people. Mm -hmm. And one of the themes that comes up or one of the things that they learn about is that in this world, futuristic world where resources are limited, there's some violence that happens. Do you think that's sort of inevitable in a future world? Yes. <laughs> I remember my husband when our, you know, we were talking about the future problems for our child after we're gone. It's always an uplifting discussion. Um, and he was saying that, you know, the the oil crisis, will, the energy crisis is, going to get scarier and scarier and scarier. And you just, I mean, you see the way that violence erupts in places where there are less opportunities. Um, so I tend to think that that is inevitable, not that we can't. It's inevitable if people, if we don't do things to stop it, basically. Not that we'll just all erupt into violence all the time. Um, that said, I there's another part of me that thinks that I could have made the book more violent, that it could have been scarier, but I didn't want to, or I didn't feel that I needed to, to get across the general idea, because I didn't want to just make gratuitous violence on every page, or the history of that to be unreadable. I think it's already kind of hard to read, so I didn't want to go too far in terms of what's necessary for you to understand, for the reader to understand what has happened here, and why it's traumatizing to the the survivors of, of the land. But maybe I'm just negative, and I think that the world. Maybe this is why I had to write an apocalyptic novel, because I think everything will just end in horrible violence. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Eden Lepecki, author of the novel California. Your book is published by Little Brown, which is an imprint of Hachette Books. And Hachette is in a major dispute with Amazon because Amazon at first was delaying delivery of any books published under the Hachette umbrella, and now they aren't selling them at all and recommend readers that they buy them from third-party sellers online. Stephen Colbert is one of Hachette's authors, and he's taken up a war with Amazon. He's pushing for shopping at independent bookstores and boycotting Amazon. In his campaign, he has held up your book as the poster child for this effort. He's mentioned your name on the show. He's shown the book cover and your photo. He's made your book a number one bestseller at Powell's Bookstore and wants to get California at the number one spot on the New York Times. I know. Crazy, right? (laughs) And so what is that? What has that experience been like for you? Um, okay, so there's so many complicated answers. I think, I, first I would say it's a little bit bittersweet because, of course, I am thrilled. I mean, can you imagine? It's so, it's so, it's even outside the realm of any stupid author fantasy. You know, my dad's like, one day you'll be on David Letterman. And I was like, that will never happen, Dad. Just forget it. But, you know, of course, I'm like, and then one day, maybe I'll be a crossword puzzle clue, which is like the stupidest fantasy, but I have entertained it in my more, you know, silly moments. But I never thought that I would ever be, you know, on the Colbert show and my book as a poster child. But because it's part of this dispute, it feels kind it feels bad because I know I'm, I, you know, there's so many authors who are suffering and they can't, their books aren't selling and they're, anxious and frustrated and feel powerless, which is exactly how I felt 
before this happens. So I really desperately want the dispute to end, and I want the books to be sold under, you know, good terms that works for the publishing industry. Um, and I don't shop at Amazon, and I never have. Um, so I, re- I really want the dispute to end. <laughs> that, that said, I mean, it's been crazy and wonderful and so weird. And I'm just, I feel really grateful that Sherman Alexi talked about my book and that Colbert has decided to make this, you know, a movement and that he's used his incredible power. I mean, I think before this happened, I didn't quite grasp just how powerful TV still is, and in particular, Stephen Colbert. Um, But, you know, I felt really good about my book coming out. I felt like it was getting good press and people were talking about it and I was totally satisfied. And now that this has happened, I realized that, you know, that was really small potatoes compared to having someone talk about your book on Comedy Central. So I just feel kind of flabbergasted and giddy about it, even as I hope that it, the dispute ends because I feel really badly about that part. Has he had you on? No, 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 no. I mean, if he wants to have me on, I'm totally available. Um, but I'm also, I think I would be terrified to be on. I mean, it's one of those things where as I'm like in the shower, I think any person would be like, and then when I go on the view, I'll be so charming and I'll wear this really cute dress. And you kind of imagine like the dream version of yourself on TV or whatever. Maybe I'm giving too much away about what I actually think about. Um, but then thinking about, okay, actually having to go on TV and be charming without your hands shaking with fear <laughs> is a totally other story. But if he wants me to have me on, of course, I would be honored. But it hasn't, as far as I know, it's, it hasn't happened. So I have a question for you because in, um, you know, when they send out your galleys to people to read before it's really published, yeah. they have a list of all these blurbs. And I, mm-hmm. I would assume like in the writing business, you want to get good blurb. And <laughs> what what is that? experience I've never really asked anyone like how do you go about that and what does it mean um blurbs are so funny because I think that they it's always there's always a debate about whether they do anything in terms of sales or if readers look at them I mean I look at blurbs but I feel like I'm looking at blurbs from a writer's perspective but I'm not sure when I switched over from looking at them as a reader to looking at them as a writer um, so I was pretty nervous about asking for them, but um, I guess I know a lot of writers from working at The Millions, which is a website about books and culture. So I've interviewed quite a few writers, um, and I've you know reviewed quite a bit. So I've struck up email email relationship relationships with a lot of writers, um, and I think um, my editor also you know she sent out the book. I think to a very large number of writers just hoping that one might come back with a blur. But, you know, just I've gotten like five blurb requests in the past month and my book is not even out. So I can only imagine how many requests a real author gets. (laughs) So um, I was pretty nervous about it, but then also so surprised and grateful to all the writers who blurred me and even the writers who didn't, but wrote me back and said, you know, I would, but I just have too much going on X, Y, and Z. Just the fact that they, they knew kind of what I was going through in terms of trying to get blurred and not, you don't want to be too, you don't want to make people, you don't want to impose upon people's time. Um, so they know that process. And so they're really sympathetic to it. Um, 
so I got more than I ever thought I would, and I feel really grateful and amazed. Um, and I just think that most of the reason why it was easier for me to get some was that I had worked with some of the authors in the past, so I had a kind of working relationship with a lot of them. I'm wondering if you could read a brief passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer. Sure. Um, I decided actually to take a poem because I thought it would be easier for to kind of dis- to give you something distilled that was fun to listen to. Um, so I actually chose the poem Purple Bathing Suit by Louise Gluck. And this poem is my favorite of hers, and I just really love it. So I'll just read it, and then we can discuss it if you want. Um, so Purple Bathing Suit by Louise Gluck. I like watching you garden with your back to me in your purple bathing suit. Your back is my favorite part of you, the part furthest away from your mouth. You might give some thought to that mouth, also to the way you weed, breaking the grass off at ground level when you should pull it up by the roots. How many times do I have to tell you how the grass spreads, your little pile notwithstanding, in a dark mass which by smoothing over the surface you have finally fully obscured? Watching you stare into space in the tidy, in the tidy rows of the vegetable garden, ostensibly working hard while actually doing the worst job possible, I think... You are a small, irritating, purple thing, and I would like to see you walk off the face of the earth because you are all that's wrong with my life, and I need you, and I claim you. So not necessarily flattering. (laughs) No. I realized when I picked it, I was like, what is this going to say about me? (laughs) (laughs) So why do you love it? Uh, I love it for so many reasons. I mean, I love this kind of straightforward quality of the prose, and yet it has a musicality to it you know, um, breaking the grass off at ground level. Your back is my favorite part of you, the part furthest away from your mouth. It has kind of a, there's a lot of like little surprise, surprising, witty moments. Um, And then I just, the ending, the turn, I mean, I know there's a a poet friend of mine told me there is a name for this, but I never remember it. It's the turn in a poem that, you know, the logic sort of gets, the meaning kind of coalesces by the, ending and there's something kind of revealed that makes the poem larger as a whole. Um, but the ending where it's like, she's going on and on about all you're irritating and you're doing it wrong. And, ah, you're so annoying. And then she says, because you are all that's wrong with my life and I need you and I claim you. I love the fact that she uses and I need you instead of, but I need you. I just feel like that one choice is so magnificent and you suddenly feel there's so many more questions about this couple and this speaker, and I, I just love the mystery of it and the surprise of it, I guess. Can you read something that was maybe difficult for you to write or something that you um, changed a lot from first draft or something that you're happy with? So at the beginning, which is not that different from the very first thing I wrote, on the map, their destination had been a stretch of green as if they would be living on a golf course. No freeways nearby or any roads, really. Those had been left to rot years before. Frida had given this place a secret name, the afterlife, and on their journey when they were forced to hide in abandoned rest stops or when they'd spilled the car with the last of their gasoline, this place had beckoned. In her mind, it was a township, and Cal was the mayor. She was the mayor's wife. Of course, it was nothing like that. The forest had not been expecting them. If anything, it had tried to throw them out again and again, but they had stayed, perhaps even prospered. Now Frida could only laugh at the memory of herself over two years ago, dragging a duffel bag behind her with a groan, 
her nails bitten to curse word, her stomach roiling, grime like she'd never imagined. Even her knees had smelled. She thought it would be easier once they arrived. She should have known better. The work didn't end then. If anything, it got worse, and for months the exhaustion and fear ticked in her body like a dealer shuffling cards. At night, the darkness gave her a skinned-alive feeling, and she longed for her old childhood bed, for a bed, period. She had packed some things to comfort herself, the dead device, a matchbook from their favorite bar. Cal later called them her artifacts. In a world so disconnected from the past, her attachment to these objects was her only strategy for remaining sane. It still was. She tried not to take them too often, but Cal had left the house to do some digging, and he wouldn't be back for at least an hour. Even though the sky was gray, the sun weak, he'd worn his plaid button down and the bandana around his neck. He still had a bottle of sunscreen, but it had expired and was as watery as skin milk. Stay inside for a while, he said before he left. Frida had linked her arms around his neck. Where would I go? He kissed her goodbye on the mouth, as he did and always would. She already of the artifacts tucked away in an old briefcase shoved under one of the unused twin cots. It had been a rough morning. And I'll end there. All right. Tell me about your experience writing this. I feel like the universe, the writing universe, gives us gifts every once in a while uh, where you just get like a free pass and whatever you wrote the first time miraculously plays. Um, So that's one of those little free tickets that I got. (laughs) And where do you write? Uh, I now write where I'm calling you now where you might have heard my dog barking. (laughs) the self-service body. I now write in an office. I, I rent a downstairs part of a woman's house that's about a mile away from my own house. But uh, before that, I've always written in my dining room in my office at home. Um, so this is the first time I've actually had a room of my own, which is kind of amazing. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? <laughs> I like how that question is posed as if one must, one, like, it's almost like it's so easy not to write. <laughs> um, to get away from writing, I do everything to get away from writing. Um, I have a son. He's three years old, so I'm often with him. Um, I run my own business, Writing Workshops LA, so I I do that. So teaching and planning classes, that's mainly what I'm doing. Uh, I read often to get away from writing. <laughs> I like to cook with my husband. Um Quite honestly, I'll do anything except write if I can. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, I show it to a couple. My husband reads it first, usually. Um, I have a friend named Madeline McDonald, who is an incredible writer. She has two uh, books out with Rescue Press, and she's working on a novel. And I met her in Iowa. And she's a former lexicographer, so she reads all of my work and gives me great copy edits. <laughs> um, and then I show, I've been showing more work earlier to my agent. She's very good at kind of big picture comments. And how have you dealt with rejection? Oh, various glasses of wine. (laughs) Um, You know, I feel like I've been rejected so many times, and I always want to say that it gets easier, but in fact it seems to get harder the higher the stakes are. So I had a novel before California that didn't sell. um, That was just really heartbreaking to have that novel not sell. But... I, while I, that was on that novel was on submission for a year, and in that year I wrote most of a lot of the first draft of California. I just kept writing, and so writing is really the way that I am rescued from rejection. 
um, it's kind of like, they don't want me, well, I'll show them. And then I just dive into a new fictional space that's kind of a safe space, I guess you could say. Um, and I just sort of try to laugh it off. I feel like it's a part of the writing life and not to take it so personally. And that out of rejection comes better things, I think. And what is your favorite word? Well, I couldn't come up with one. <laughs> um, a couple words that I love. I like the word tender a lot. I think it's really fun to say. Um, and it's pretty. I like the word solemn. Mostly I like how it looks. I like that. It's almost like that. It's like a secret N, N at the end. But I think it's really beautiful. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest was Eden Lopecki, author of the novel California. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.